Well, of course, uh, I don't need to inform you of what a glorious text has just been read and of which we are going to look at for the next few moments and then expound upon it as it moves forward throughout the course of the book of Genesis and the life of Abram historically. And I say that I don't need to remind you because you are here this Lord's Day as fruits that have sprung from it. What a glorious text to think, as was just read for us, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless you, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you. And then as you gather this Lord's Day uh, to sit and hear the word of the Lord, to sing his praise, to welcome one another as brother and sister in the faith. So this text reads, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Here is the first time in Scripture where we read God directly engaging Abram as an individual. Again, I can't share with you enough or overstate how monumental such a text is for your own faith to which you are readily aware as you read throughout the Bible and as you look in the New Testament, as you study the epistle to the Galatians, as you consider the entirety of the gospel expounded in the book of Romans, you know this text matters for you. It's the first time we see God directly engaging Abram. And then in this engagement, as you have seen and has been read, God first gives Abram a command. And you see it right there at the opening of the vision of the, uh, of the appearance of the Lord as he appears to Abram, verse 1. Now, the Lord said in that appearance, and we'll look at Stephen's speech regarding these events and seek to harmonize them. They come up in Acts chapter 7 in a very significant and important way of which we'll look at this morning. But the Lord, Stephen says, appeared to our father Abram. And what we have here in 12.1, now the Lord said to Abram in that appearance, go from your father's house. And so the very first thing that God gives to Abram is a commandment. And then he proceeds to provide for Abram three tremendous, glorious promises to him. As we approach the call to Abram, it's important that we remember the broader picture of which we took several weeks to develop so that when we got here, we could really understand the text within its context. To understand the role of Abram in broader redemptive historical structure that has brought over 2,000 years of Earth's history to this point where God engages a single individual. You remember, and you must, as you would seek to benefit from this text as much as absolutely possible, you recall Abram is a descendant of Shem. This is significant at this point within the text that God chose Abram from his father's household because he is a descendant of Shem. If you will just look back, again, I won't work all of these texts. I just wish you to see how we connect Abram's call to the fact that he belongs to Shem. And you see it where Noah pronounced a blessing, and it's right after the flood events, a few years after the flood events. Remember, the, the time is moving more slowly than the narratives. Uh, after the uh, getting off of the ark, Noah had time to plant a vineyard and have wine from it. Of course, that takes like two verses, but you realize if anyone has attempted to grow grapes and then perhaps into a harvest to where then you finally have wine from it, you know it's a good long while. 
So Noah at this point then pronounces a prophecy regarding his sons after the event of whatever took place there where it was inappropriate with the sons regarding Noah and his tent. Noah comes to and then he pronounces these prophetic words upon his boys. And you notice uh, beginning, cursed be Canaan. And you see that in verse 24 of chapter 9. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. And then he moves and he looks at Shem, of which you now are seeing Abram. Called of God to leave his father's household. Why Abram? Because he belongs to Shem. Now, of course, why just Abram? Because there's others who belong to Shem. Well, that is the Lord's provision and his sovereign purpose and call. Nonetheless, Abram belongs to Shem, and that's significant. Because he also said, verse 26, blessed be the Lord. And then notice that he marks the Lord as a blessed uh, covenant to belong to. Blessed be the Lord. Indeed, the Lord is blessed. And then he marks out, that is, the God of Shem. From this point forward, then, Shem is marked as belonging to that God of the covenant, the God of Noah. That is, blessed be the Lord to whom Noah is already in covenant. Then he expressly says, the God of Shem. And then let Canaan be his servant, may God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell then. Japheth, let him dwell in the tents of Shem. Well, why is that a blessing? Because he will dwell in proximate blessedness to the God of Shem. Because God will be with Shem. You see, Noah here, if we think of it carefully, we notice that he provides a prophetic blessing to Shem alone. And to Shem's descendants. He establishes here, after the flood events, in prophetic voice, that Shem and his descendants will be a priestly line and a godly community. Again, unlike in degree, but of Japheth, different in kind from Canaan. Shem will be a priestly and godly community. Moving forward from this prophetic utterance upon the tents of Shem and his descendants, you notice that they will now be marked as their identity of belonging. Again, in distinction from all other peoples, the line of Shem will have a unique relationship to the God of creation. Shem is uniquely, he and his descendants are uniquely blessed. God is showing favor to Shem. One author makes this comment as we consider it together just for a few moments. The blessed creator of all of life and the Lord of all history commits himself to Shem. This is the first indication that God elects the line of Shem to rule the earth and to crush the serpent. However, you realize, even in this pronouncement, and this is significant as we look at the life of Abram as well, things do not immediately pivot and turn to fruitfulness. You remember, we move right after the prophetic blessing by way of the narrative into the Tower of Babel incident. Then we move through post-Babel, and we keep going down the line through the genealogy of Shem, and we find Terah. 
And we think, oh great, we followed the godly line. And now we're arriving at Abram, who was born with two brothers in the house of Terah. This is tremendous. But we only can say that because we've already read the New Testament's exposition of it. If we come back and we just simply follow the genealogical record, we realize, well, things are not going great by the time we get to Terah. You see, as we followed the text carefully, and we have for several weeks, and now we're on the verge of God speaking directly to Abram, the man of faith, by the time we are introduced to Terah, 400 years after the flood event, the vibrancy of the covenant people of God has waned. They've been through a lot in 400 years. And they haven't succeeded well. It's highlighted by the fact that, again, of course, we're aided by, sure, geographical markers. You remember where God is finding Abram. He's finding him in Mesopotamia, in Ur. And even at that time, it's marked by the land of the Chaldeans. But then, again, Joshua helps us in, as he speaks of the history of our people, where he says, again, uh, our, father took, or our fathers were taken from the wrong side of the river. They were idolatrous. So then we come back to the text and we find Terah 400 years after the flood event, not even living among his own, but among idolaters. And is himself, Joshua tells us, an idolater. But wait a minute, I thought he belonged to the godly line of Shem. Indeed. Terah, it appears, has lost his way. And he has led his family in the way of idolatry. The obedient covenant community, that is, the godly line of Shem, is by the time we arrive at Terah, perhaps even soon to disappear from the earth. The question that that then prompts us to ask this morning, as good readers of the text, following it carefully, where we find Terah, an idolater himself, yet he's supposed to be a godly man following in the blessedness of the tents of Shem. The question at this point is this, will God's purposes for creation For a people, you remember, where do these questions come from? But the garden, God set in the garden a people and a place, and his presence was to dwell there. And yet sin entered in. And they were kicked out of the garden. The question that we must ask then with Terah, and now that God appears to Abram, is God's purpose for creation, for a people, for a place, and for his presence to dwell in peace among them, will this Decree never be realized in the earth. Maybe if we were to ask it another way, as we find Terah, an idolater, in the land of Ur, in the Chaldeans, has Satan, through the garden episode, thwarted God's goodwill for creation? Is the redemptive scheme defeated? And is it over? Of course, to you this morning, I'm sure, having known the story and being the fruit of such blessed faith this morning, the simple and biblically informed answer to such a question is no. 
And so we might read this text simply and think Abram was from the minute go the man of faith that we all know him to be today. As we read of him in the New Testament and we are the fruit of his labors. But the answer in the text, if we patiently watch the, the, the story unfold, well, the question in the text is meaningful and it lingers long and is heavy upon Abram and his household. At this time in the earth, the question of is the redemptive promise over? It, it will, will the serpent ever be crushed? Will God's will for the earth be thwarted? The question lingers heavy within this text. At this time in the earth with Terah and his family as God approaches Abram, again, the question is just not simply answered. In fact, by the time you get here and the God spoke to Abram of verse 1 of chapter 12 in Genesis, of which we're looking at this morning, God has not directly spoken to his covenant people in nearly 400 years. Again, we know that because we labored long in the genealogical records. If we go back to the end of the ark event when God uh, brought the ark to a conclusion matter, and then Noah emerged, and we marked that time, and we watched the birth of Abram, and now the call upon Abram, just prior to turning 75, we realize that no one has heard from God in any direct manner, at least as far as we're told in the text, in nearly 400 years. You have the same time gap in what is called the intertestamental period between Malachi and Matthew. There we find God's people yet again, and we see an angel appear, right, and speaks to uh, Zechariah uh, about Elizabeth, and that uh, his prayers were heard, and his wife will have a son. We hear about John the Baptist, and then we see Mary and Elizabeth, and so on and so forth. Prior to that appearance, now the Lord had spoken, and then what we see here now that the Lord has spoken to Abraham, both gaps are 400 years. So what's the point of the silence? What do we learn as we consider Abram this morning? We'll consider just briefly that even in silence, and this is something we must apply to our own faith, for we often feel that we live in silence. We seek for answers and we feel those answers unheard. Or we feel that the answer is not appearing in a way that we can actionably respond and take peace and drive action from. But we must, based on these time gaps, also be nourished in our faith to recognize that even in silence, God's people can be confident that they and the whole creation with them are in the hands of a personal God who can indeed be trusted. That is what we see here in this text of 400 years of silence that is broken in a moment when God appears to Abram. God's redemptive promises and his intentions for the world re-emerge after 400 years of silence. And they center upon a single individual, a single Shemite and his family. Notice the command that is given as you look at the text with me just briefly. Now, again, after 400 years of silence, a word is given. 
The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I want you to jump down to verse 4, if you will. Because there's a little bit of work to be done here. Verse 4 indicates to us, if we jump over the blessings of which we will handle each in their kind at their appropriate moment. But notice verse 4. So Abram went. Right? So the Lord had commanded him to go. What we learn of Abram is, in verse 4, he went as the Lord had told him. Lot went with him. There's a question mark there. Then we have this date within the text to discern. Abram was 75 years old when he departed. Notice the text very carefully from Haran. <clears throat> now again, what's going on here? Well, if we mark this in the text, and it says that Abram is 75 years old, we recognize this is just 10 years before he takes Hagar to be his wife, or his mistress, who then may give child. But it also tells us that Haran is the place where Abram, at 75 years, departed from Haran. What are we making of this? Where is Abram at and where is he going? Come with me, if you would, please, to Acts chapter 7. It's significant, and I'll show you how. Acts chapter 7, if you would, please. Again, if we consider the Genesis account first, before we read Stephen's speech here, we consider that Abram is not exactly 75 years yet. Verse 4 told us that Abram is 75. That means when he is told to leave, he is not quite 75 yet. He is approaching 75. Because in verse 1, he is told to do what? Leave his father's house. Think of it before we read this text. Abram is with his father. What you're asked to do now is you're asked to understand that the marker in the text that is number 12, sometimes you have to disregard or work with the numbers. Because as is written, realize, they were not put in with chapter numbers. So what you're dealing with now is Abram is somehow still attached to his father's house because he's commanded to leave it. Leave your father's house. You're like, well, he can't be with his father's house because the verse just before that told us that his father died. How do I square this? And is Abram 75 when he hears the call to leave his father's house? In other words, is Terah still alive when Abram first heard the call to leave? Well, there's a chapter number there, so it must not be. Well, remember... Look at the text, because Stephen sheds light on this for us. Acts chapter 7. Here's Stephen's speech, beginning in verse 1. And the high priest said, are these things so? And so here is Stephen's speech as he recounts redemptive history, as he makes plain under the inspiration of the Spirit how we are to know what really is going on with Abram in Genesis 12. Is Terah still with Abram? And what does that tell us about Abram if he is? 
Well, under the inspiration of the Spirit, this is what Stephen has to say for us. Verse 2, and Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. So, so again, now you're not told that in the Genesis account. In the Genesis account, we're not sure of exactly what form or what motion it took place. The Lord spoke to Abram, but it doesn't say anything about appearing or if it was a theophany, if it was an angel. We don't know. So, so under the inspiration, Stephen here speaks of what we know. Now, the God of glory appeared to our father Abram. Now notice what we're harmonizing between Acts 7 and Genesis 11 and 12 when he was in Mesopotamia. Before he lived in Haran. And now it's coloring your view of Abram a little bit. You're like, it, it, it can't be in Mesopotamia in Ur because we know that he, he left Ur but he, and he left with his father in the direction of Canaan, but they stayed in Haran. And then we read in chapter 12, he was told to leave. It can't be that he's wrestling with obedience. We know Abram to obey. We know his faith immediately to ascend. We know Abram to be the man of faith. We know automatically, it can't wait. What, what, what does this tell us about the nature of faith? What does it tell us about our own faith? What does it mean to obey partially? What is the weight of that for my own mode of obedience? Do I also obey partially? Do I also need my faith to mature? Are you telling me that that is what we see with Abram? Is a faith that is birthed by the faith that is weak? Will God help my faith when it too is weak? It appears, this is a picture we're given from Stephen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. When, Stephen, when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And then he said to him there in Mesopotamia, go out from your land from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans. And, and did he go to the land that God would show him? No. He lived in Haran. And then his father died. God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. You see, if we come back to harmonize the two accounts, to know where was Abram when he heard the call of God, and what do we learn from it as Abram either obeyed or didn't obey, maybe he partially obeyed, did he fully obey? And if he was to leave his father's house, why is Lot still with him? What do we make of the difference between Stephen's timing in the account and what we read by Moses here in Genesis? In other words, the question would be more pointed if we asked it this way. 
when did Abram hear? And then further, I'll just conclude with you here in a moment. Why does it matter? To the first question that I hope to help with and provide an answer to. Firstly, when did Abram hear? Stephen said it was when he was in Mesopotamia before he ever went to Haran. And he heard it and our God appeared to him before his father died. And then you hear it says, well, uh, Terah died when he was 205. Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram. And Stephen says, again, you need to look at that within the context of what's going on. And for us, perhaps, it is to consider the chapter number. And we just kind of brush the chapter number aside because it just at this point it's kind of not helpful. Because Abram heard, he moved. And we saw that at the end of chapter 11. He went with his father's house. And you notice that Moses indicates to us again who led the excursion. Terah did. So Abram at best is moving along with Terah. And again, last week I spoke to you, we don't really know what the impulse for Terah was to take up his tent, his entire caravan, and start moving toward Canaan. We're uncertain. We watched the tragedy befall his family with his son's death. And then we know that there is no future for his other son, Abram. Now he's caring for Lot also. They move toward Canaan. Stephen tells us Abram knew. Do they make it to Canaan? No, they do not. They stop in Haran. Did Abram stop with them? Yes, he did. If we harmonize the accounts together, I think what we learn is that Stephen's speech with what we read in the Genesis account, it appears that Abram received God's initial call in Ur. He then moved to Haran with his father. Think of that. If the commandment came in Ur, he was explicitly told to leave his father's house. He moved with his father's house to Haran. He lived in Haran until his father died. And then he began to move to the land that God would show him. In other words, Abram did not, according to Stephen, immediately leave his father's household, nor will he next, within our text as well, because he will take Lot with him. Again, there's some question there about whose responsibility Lot would have been by the time and the age that Lot is within the text. But we do know the fruits of that decision show themselves in ugly fashion. Lot begins to cause a lot of trouble. I think there's a question there as I'll move towards our conclusion just in a moment. But there is a question, beloved. Even of the man of faith. We identify that Abram, you see, he is a man like us. He is a man who has clay feet, they say. A man also who is slow to act 
in obedience, even when told. I think if I said, well, raise your hand and hear if you also know what's right and you're a little slow to do it sometimes. My second and last question is, why does it matter? Again, if Abram heard in Ur, and then we see he left with his father and everybody else, and they went toward Canaan, but not out to Canaan, and not out to the land the Lord would show him. But they moved, and then they came, again, 550 miles, and they landed in Haran. We're like, hey, let's call it a day. This is a good spot. Let's live here. And Abram's like, I think so. Why does all that matter? I think for several reasons. And I'll touch on one the next time we're together as we progress within the narrative. But I just share one with you this morning that I want you to consider with me just for the next couple of moments. Why does it matter that we understand the chronology events? What does it matter that we parse Stephen and Moses so that we can put them together in harmony and understand the text? Why are we laboring so hard? For one, because what I think it tells you, as I've indicated so far, I think it's significant that we grasp the ordering of events and the chronology of Abram's faith because of what that tells us about our need for progression within our faith. You're familiar with the episode in the Gospels and the disciples likewise asking, Lord, help our unbelief. Do you ever feel that way? I believe God to be these things, good, provisionary, merciful, kind, judging, yes indeed, but I find myself in the sun, thereby I am not going to suffer direct judgment, but through the sun, experience mercy. Yes, I believe, yes, I know him to be these things, But would you also admit that you're slow to act on them? You see, if we dissected faith here and we think of progression of faith and our need to grow in the faith, we think of faith in three ways, don't we? We think of its component parts. Just think with me for a moment. If we had faith like this, right, and it was a dough or it was like a lump of something, and we're looking at it as faith. It just says faith on the cover. And we're like, okay, great, let's dissect this. And we pulled out elements that are comprising, if we put them back together, faith as thing. You recall what we would say faith is. First, faith is knowledge. All right? Ingredient number one, drop some, drop some knowledge in there. If you're making a lump of faith, drop some knowledge in there. And you're like, great, okay, great, so I know some things. And that's where you find yourself this morning. You know a few things. And then you're like, okay, I got some knowledge in there, but I need some more in order to have faith as a thing. Right, so what goes in next? Assent. I look at the things I put in and I assent to them. Indeed, in fact, what I mean by that is I agree with these things I put in there, these knowledgeable facts. I agree with them. I say they are true, good, and just, and right. Yeah, things in ascent, knowledge in ascent, but then there's this third component that causes us all to trip, and I think that's what we see with the man Abram. 
third ingredient you have to put in there if it goes into the oven and will come out as a lump of edible faith is trust. It's not just that we know a few things and we agree with a few things. Faith rests upon those things. Faith acknowledges, agrees, and rests. If I could give you a human analogy as I work towards my conclusion, you know what that is. You've probably done it as a teenager. Uh, I don't recommend necessarily doing it, but you've, you've seen them. They're called trust falls. Right? I mean, that's the analogy in human form. You stand up at some harvest party or some get-together and youth group retreat, and you get up on some platform, and a bunch of people down there commit to catching you if you'll turn around and just trust them and fall. It's a great little analogy when you think of, yeah, knowledge, assent. And the guy who will not fall off the platform onto the hands of his friends is the guy of knowledge and assent. I bet you do commit to catching me. I look down, I see the hands, I see the people. I, with my knowledge, view you, even my friends. I, I, I acknowledge the fact of you. In fact, I don't even assign malicious intent that you're all going to watch me break my back. I trust that you say, we will, with charity, catch you if you fall. And you're like, I assent to that confession. It's, I agree you probably would. But I have not exercised faith until I turn, and in that knowledge, and with that assent, I fall. Exercising trust in the claims to which I assent to. That's the element, beloved, of faith that Abram here struggles with when our Lord appeared to our father Abraham. It's what we struggle with in our faith even now. And it's not a momentary decision to trust God and you're like, I don't struggle with that anymore. I trusted God yesterday. I trusted him in 1994. It's an ongoing walk of the need and nature of faith that it must be regularly nourished upon the promises of God, whereby in his mercy through his spirit, he enables me to trust again and again and again and again. It is true of Abram in this text, beloved. Not just here will Abram's faith need to mature, so also is ours in its fragile state so often, needing the maturity and the mercies of the Spirit of God. But it will manifest itself in Abram's life again and again and again. I mentioned to you now, Abram is struggling with faith to trust and to go to Canaan. He lays up in, Ham in, in, in Haran. He waits till his dad dies, according to Stephen, and then he leaves. Remember, it's not like, oh, right, so Abram trusted God? Well, yeah, but in 10 years, he'll also take a concubine to seek to fulfill the covenant with it. Faith is fragile in nature. It clings, however, beloved to a strong Lord, 
as we think of this text going forward and our need for our faith to mature, you're probably enduring many things in life and you'll endure more undoubtedly as we move forward. As we gaze upon the man of faith and we learn about the nature of our own faith as we walk with Abram through these texts, may God grant to each one of us that the truths of the gospel be as much in our hearts as they are in our heads so that indeed we will grow by degrees into conformity with Christ. Let us pray. Father, we ask that you will enable us to be enlivened in our faith, that we recognize as clay vessels that the faith of which is precious but that possesses within us is fragile in nature, set about by many weaknesses, frail, full of doubt. We pray that you, by your grace, would enliven, empower, and take an ember and fan it into a flame. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.